You are listening to content from Christ Our Hope Anglican Church in Fort Collins, Colorado. For more information, you can find us on the web at ChristOurHopeAnglican.org. And now, here's today's message. If you've been with us for the last few weeks, you know that we've been doing a sermon series on um, that we titled The Ordinary Christian Life. So as we moved into ordinary time, we've been going through the Psalms and looking at some parts of, of what we see revealed in the Psalms and what they teach us about the steady walk that we have with God, where one week after another, what are the things, the elements that are part of who we are as a church, part of who we are as a people of God. We began by looking at forgiveness as the entry point into the Christian life and also something that we circle and come back to again and again and again. It's the entry and the anchor continually drawing us back to God's mercy as we come to him and we confess and we repent and we ask for forgiveness. We moved on to talking about thanksgiving, a theme that we saw come up in the Psalms again and again and again and talked about how gratitude is at the very heart of the ordinary Christian life, because everything that we have, we have received by grace. And because we have received it by grace, we receive it with thanksgiving, and we offer it back up to God and receive it again, made even made new. We talked about trust being an essential part of the Christian life, a willingness to look at what God has done and who he is, his deeds and his character, and therefore walk with him and trust him, even when we cannot yet see the end of the story. We talked about generosity, a companion to trust, because in our lack of fear and anxiety, we don't have to cling to things as those in the world does. We trust that God will give us what we need, that he will provide for us. And because he has given it to us and he has given it to us to be a blessing to others, we can give generously to others as well. And we talked about loyalty, about recognizing God as king and honoring him as king over and above all other lords that compete for our attention. And we talked last week about restoration about holding on even during the dark times, about recognizing that in those moments where we feel separation from God or we feel fear or anxiety, that we remember what God has done for us. We look back at those anchors of our life and we use that to turn us around and restore us back to him because our turning will always be according to our remembrance. And so we cling to those memories and turn back to him again and again. And today, as we start out looking at Psalm 22, I want to talk about something else that is often a part of the ordinary Christian life, something that sometimes we don't want to acknowledge or actually recognize in ourselves, which is doubt. We think of the Christian life as one that is by faith, and we often put that in contrast to doubt, that we we say we've we've got this hard-won trust in God, and, and then I'm not going to... Um, to allow any sort of doubt to creep into it. And in fact, if you're just listening to the portion of the psalm that we read, it seems like a psalm entirely of trust. It doesn't seem like it mentions anything at all there about doubt. Um, But it's a hard-won trust. It's a trust that comes after wrestling with doubt that is at the beginning of the psalm. 
The words at the beginning of the psalm are perhaps the most famous words of anguish in the entire scriptures because they are the words that were spoken by Jesus when he hung upon the cross. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? It is a cry of doubt, but not perhaps the way we think about doubt in the world. We oftentimes think of doubt as just sort of a skepticism, as an intellectual process that we engage with that says, I I can't believe all of this. I'm not sure if it's true. Let me weigh the evidence here and there. Um, And we actually can, in our culture, sometimes come to glorify doubt as as something that means that you are more wise than others. You are more shrewd by clinging on to your doubt, that your faith is more real if you've got doubts and you, and you hold on to that. And that's not what we're talking about here. Nor are we talking about cynicism, uh, just a hardening of the heart that, that comes and just says, I can't really believe what God, that God is good because his goodness is just too good to be true. And it just is, becomes this hardening of the heart that rejects the gospel. But what we are doing is acknowledging the reality of suffering as part of the Christian life. And that emotionally, in the midst of that suffering, we oftentimes feel a separation from God. So the doubt that the psalmist has in this psalm is not actually a doubt about the goodness of God. It's not even a doubt about the existence of God. It's not some sort of skepticism that he's built out because he's made a case against God. Instead, it is a recognition that in the moment, he wonders if he is actually part of the story of God. There is this moment in Psalm 22, the first part of it, where after my God, my God, why have you forsaken me and are so far from my cry and the words of my complaint? Oh my God, I cry in the daytime, but you do not hear in the night season also, but I find no rest. But you remain holy enthroned upon the praises of Israel. Our fathers hoped in you. They trusted in you, and you delivered them. They called upon you and were delivered. They put their trust in you and were not confounded. But as for me, I am a worm and no man, scorned by all and the outcast of the people. There is this fear in the midst of his suffering, in the midst of his anguish, that he has been cut off. He recognizes and sees the people of God praising. He recognizes and knows the stories of God's deliverance that he has heard time and time again. And in that moment, those stories of deliverance only sharpen his anguish because that is exactly what he needs, but it is not what he is receiving. The truth is that his trust that he has placed in God has become for him a reason to just be mocked. Verse 8, it says, um, in verse 7 actually, it starts and says, All those who see me laugh me to scorn. They curl their lips and shake their heads, saying, He trusted in God that he would deliver him. Let him deliver him if he will have him. In this moment, the fact that God is a God of deliverance, the fact that he truly and honestly believes that God is a God of deliverance is no comfort because he is not being delivered. And this is oftentimes part of our Christian life. We enter into suffering and we cry out to God 
in the hopes that it will be lifted, but it's not. We endure chronic illness. We see the death of loved ones. We're diagnosed with disease. We know the brokenness of relationships that we cannot seem to mend. We feel slaves to our own sin that we cannot seem to just put behind us. And we know and trust still that God is a God of deliverance. And we ask, why then will he not deliver me? And when we come to the psalm, we see that it's okay to feel that way. God asks us in our doubt and our anguish, in our wondering about our place in the story, to cry out to him with our whole heart, holding nothing back. We are able to ask that question, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? It was found on the very lips of Jesus as he hung on the cross. And yes, it's a statement that looks to the whole picture and it looks to the whole psalm, but it also is a real emotional feeling that we are allowed to feel. Our emotions are real, but they do not define our reality. Our emotions are real, but so is God. And this is what the psalm invites us to remember. That if we are going to come to a place of trust, if we're going to come to a place where our spot in the story does not seem insecure, where we no longer question whether or not God's deliverance is for us, we cannot get there by denying our anguish, by denying our pain, by denying our doubt. We can only get there by acknowledging it and giving it to God. This is the difference between doubt in a life of faith and doubt that rejects faith. Doubt that rejects faith turns from God and says, I'm, I'm not going to bring things to you anymore. I'm not going to actually lift up my heart. I'm going to try to hide myself from you. Adam and Eve, when they doubted the goodness of God, hid from him, trying to keep their shame to themselves. And all it did was perpetuate their brokenness, perpetuate their sin, because it was not until they actually encountered God that they could receive a promise of healing and blessing. The only way to restore our trust is actually to cry out with honesty about our anguish, our pain, and even our doubt. And as we do so, it teaches us as well to open our eyes and to look for deliverance. We look for deliverance because of the stories that we've heard, because of the trust that we place in God's character. We look for deliverance because we know that that is part of, of who God is. But if we aren't looking for that from Him, then even when our circumstances change, even when our grief is lifted, we won't know that it actually came from Him. We can receive the, the ending of our pain, the ending of our suffering at times, because God does bring deliverance, 
and not realize that it's a gift that we can give, be thankful to God for. But when we tell our story in a way that our eyes are open to that deliverance, and we see it because we have been looking for it, then it pushes back against the cynicism that tries to crowd around our hearts, the cynicism that says, I will never and can never be delivered, and instead recognizes God again and again as the one who delivers, the one who frees us, the one who lifts us out of that muck and that mire. The psalmist is doing that in verses 9 through 9 and 10. Even as the, the people are mocking him, he says, But you are he that took me out of my mother's womb. You were my hope when I was yet upon my mother's breasts. I have been cast upon you ever since I was born. You are my God, even from my mother's womb. Oh, go not far from me, for trouble is near at hand, and there is none to help me. Even at the same time that he recognizes his feeling alone, his emotional, uh, just being bereft, the despair, he also says, but there is no way to look for deliverance apart from you. This is the only way that I can hope to be restored. And as he does so, he also engages in working with his memory. Because looking and telling the stories of God's deliverance that he has done over and over again, uh, the, the work that he has done in our own lives, the work that he has done among the people of God, builds in ourselves a resilient trust that can weather the storms of doubt, that can weather suffering and grief and despair. Verse 22 he says, I will declare your name to my brethren. In the midst of the congregation, I will praise you. And, and this comes after a long period of just talking about the, the seeming hopelessness of his situation. And yet he is going to choose to praise God, to remember what he has done. And what's, one of the favorite things about memory that I, um, from just a psychological perspective, is that as we remember things, we actually change the way that we store those memories in our minds. We sometimes think of memory as something of looking back and it's just a fixed point in time and we're remembering that exact same thing. We've kind of stored it on a hard drive. We can pull that file up whenever we want to again and again. Um, but that's not actually how human memory works. Human memory, when we put something into long-term storage, essentially when you recall it and you bring it back up to your short-term memory, when you start thinking about it again, it deletes the, the long-term file. And then when you you can go put it back and, and put it, it restores the memory each time that you think about it and dwell on it. And so what this means is that what you remember is not necessarily the event itself. You kind of remember the memory. And you're kind of making a copy of a copy of a copy of a copy of a copy. Now, one thing that this means is that sometimes human memory is not as reliable as we think that it is. <laughs> We've probably all experienced some things that we remember from our childhood that we are pretty sure we only remember because it was repeated to us over and over and over again. Where I've got some stories from my childhood that I'm fairly certain never happened because they're just so ridiculous, <laughs> and yet they seem real when I think about them. I can remember this time that I was like, working in the front of, of where our condominium complex, like working, and I heard a rattle down a hole. And I was like, Mom, there's a baby in the hole. And I don't think I was ever at a time that I did not understand that babies didn't fit down holes, but rattlesnakes do. 
Um, and yet, yet, that's a memory that I have that seems like something that happened to me, and I, I just doubt it. <laughs> but it also means that when we recall our memories and we dwell on things, we have an opportunity to shape how we perceive it. This is part of how counselors help you by actually making you remember things, is by drawing something to your mind, you can, you can restore it without necessarily all of the emotional associations that it used to have. You can pull something up and then put it back after working with it for a little bit and see things differently. And, and the goal here in a counseling office or the goal here as we as Christians walk through the ordinary Christian life is not to somehow give ourselves false memories. We're not trying to implant things that, that weren't there. We're not trying to sort of make ourselves believe that God is good when it didn't really happen. What we are doing is we are framing those memories. We are changing the ways that we think about things with the knowledge that as we do so, it prepares us for a more resilient future. It prepares us to trust. So when I think about my memories and realize that I'm looking back at those times of deliverance where God has saved me, when I think about those times that he has lifted me out of my sin or my brokenness, then I am forming new connections in my mind every time that I bring that up. Every time that I remember one of the stories of the Bible, it's not just that I'm, oh, I already knew that, and so it's already been stored there. But when I bring it up and I work with it again, and I can restore it, and I can make new emotional associations, and I can make new connections with it, and so we tell these same stories over and over again, not just as a way of improving our recall so we don't forget, but a way of, as a way of improving what actually the associations and the way that it shapes and forms us. Because as we tell these over and over again, we're restoring the memories and we are allowing the word and the deliverance of God to shape our story so that we come to trust that that is part of our story. God delivers us. Because of that, when we remember this and we shape our stories and we remember what God has done, we gain a new sense of hope. And that's exactly what happens in the psalm as we're moving through the psalm. He comes through and he's honest to God about his anguish. But as he is doing so, crying out to God in the midst of his anguish, he is forming an association that says, God is here with me in this. And he looks back on the stories of his people, and even though for a moment they just seem something that is mocking him, even in his own memories, he shapes and is formed again by saying, no, I've trusted you and I've seen it. And it gives the psalmist a new sense of hope. But I think it's also important that as we think about what that hope looks like, Certainly we can turn to the psalm to get a, a picture of hope in that second half that we read. But it's also important that we remember that the hope in this psalm and the hope of the gospel is also the hope of the cross. Jesus cried out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And he died. 
He was mocked while he was on the cross. But no angels came to lift him off. The deliverance and the hope that we have is not always one that comes today. It's not always one that comes tomorrow. It's not always one that we'll see before the end of our life. But because our hope is the hope of the cross, because it is the hope that is found on the lips of Jesus, we also remember that our hope is the hope of the resurrection. That even death is not the end of the story. There is no point of our story that is beyond hope. There is no point of your story that is beyond hope. Because we serve a God who can even lift up the dead. The, psalm, the psalmist asks that question. He says, all those who sleep in the earth, how shall they worship him? All those who go down into the dust, how shall they, they kneel before him? But my life shall be preserved in his sight, and my children shall worship him. They shall tell of the Lord to the generations to come. And of course, the psalmist looking upon this didn't have the same picture of the cross that we did when this was written. He didn't understand the resurrection, but inspired by the Holy Spirit, he wrote these words that Jesus used on the cross to point us to the fact that, yes, sometimes actually we end in death. But that's not the end of hope. That's not the end of God's deliverance. Because there is resurrection as well. There is the restoration of all things. There is the setting of all things right. There is the hope that the afflicted and the poor, that those who endure suffering throughout their entire life will yet be restored. The poor um, are mentioned twice in this second half of the psalm. For he has despised, in verse 24 it says, For he has not despised nor abhorred the low estate of the poor. If you're reading in another translation, it might say the low estate of the afflicted. Um, and he has not hidden his face from him, but when he called unto him, he heard him. And again in verse 26, The poor, or the afflicted, shall eat and be satisfied. Those who seek after the Lord shall praise him. May your hearts live forever. The hope that we have is particularly a hope for those who are suffering. It's particularly a hope for those who lack in this world. Jesus came and he sought out those who were outcasts, those who were set aside, discarded by society. He came to the hungry and he saw the needs of the people. We hear that even in the feeding of the 5,000. He saw their physical needs and he had compassion upon them and he gave them food. He gave them the bread that he would point in the Gospel of John that this is the bread that is of himself. why we come to the table every week and we eat, we remember that we are satisfied and filled by Jesus. And that is a satisfaction that is promised to us. A satisfaction that is sure and confident, even when we find ourselves among the afflicted. It's a satisfaction that will come to us even if we do not see it before our death. Because we serve a God of the resurrection. And we know that death is not the end of the story. 
we know that trust doesn't mean denying our doubts. It means taking them and offering them up to Him and allowing the remembrance of His goodness to shape us. So let's be a people who live this out, who remember that God is a God of deliverance, who speak to the hope of the gospel and of the good news, that it endures forever, that carry this good news out to others, to the afflicted, to the poor, who show them who our God is. A God of deliverance, a God of hope, a God of love, a God whom we can trust. Amen. This sermon is an audio ministry from Christ Our Hope Anglican Church in Fort Collins, Colorado. If you are in the area and would like to learn more about how you can worship with us in person or online, please visit us on the web at www.christourhopeanglican.org.